This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Just a friendly reminder, everybody, if you're interested, I have a free ebook for you at traderdiscipline.com. The book is called Discipline and Finding Your Edge. It's complimentary, also known as free. Please sign up if you'd like a copy of that. Now, please enjoy this conversation with Jawad Mian. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Today, I am just over the moon that I have uh, Jawad Mian with us here today. Jawad is a true Renaissance man. Um, he is also the founder of Stray Reflections, a global macro research firm and trading advisory with a focus on major investment themes. His clients include some of the world's largest and wisest hedge funds, asset managers, family offices, pension funds, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, and institutional investors in the world. Jawad holds a chartered market technician designation and is a CFA charter holder. He studied finance and economics at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. He is also the author of the book by the same name, Stray Reflections, which digs deep down into his life experience and really all of our experiences. And he does this speaking about themes that all of us can relate to, and he weaves in really eternal wisdom from the poets, the saints, and the philosophers. Jawad's work is prized for its staunch independence, clarity of thought, and the courage to push clients outside of their manacles of conventional thinking. Jawad, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm just excited to get to speak to you and talk to you about some of my favorite topics. So thank you. Pleasure to be with you. One of the things that really uh, touches me, I think, is that your diversity of reading material is so robust. Uh, your ability to read, bring poetry and fiction into so much of how you viewed the world. I almost suspect that is part of what makes you such an extraordinary kind of visionary of what's happening globally. Um, does Do you relate to your reading that way? Or is that just something that I'm seeing? I think the reading may help, but I feel um, it's more that I feel like I'm, I, I've slowed myself down a lot. Mm. I think in a world which is sort of um, in a frenzy, yeah. I benefit from, um, you know, working on slower, more reflective thought. Yeah. The clients don't expect me to write daily or weekly. Mm -hmm. um, so as opposed to being reactionally, I can actually be reflective. Yeah. So I think that by itself gives me a lot of pause um, in terms of how I go about doing what I do. Yeah. And then I think the reading certainly helps to an extent that it sort of um, broadens your horizon. But yeah. I don't read as much as sort of, you know, you may think um, mm. in terms of those classic texts, you know, it's the same stuff that I go over and over as opposed to always exploring newer books as yeah. well. 
Yeah. So I think it's you know uh, a combination of this uh, slowing down of my own lifestyle mm-hmm. um, and this unconventional sort of background perhaps as well that feeds into some of my reading interests. Yeah. Would you be willing to share some of that unconventional background? Yeah, I mean, you know, born and raised in Pakistan. Uh, um, sorry, from Pakistan, but born and raised in Dubai. Um, you know, started my career as a bank teller. Um, you know, not didn't go to an Ivy League school, didn't work at an investment bank, didn't work for a hedge fund, so not classically trained. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always thought for a long time that my unconventional background is actually a shortcoming. Mm-hmm. But I realized that being different from the vast majority of Western-born and trained analysts is an edge. And I realized over time um, through the help of, of some of our clients. Wow. And so I think that sort of uh, plays into it as well, perhaps, you know, um, culturally different, um, you know, geographically very different. So I'm perhaps approaching things from a very different mindset. Yeah. Yeah. When do you think that you truly began to appreciate that that was an edge? The specific moment was a debate I did with a a very prominent hedge fund manager in 2016. It was like a bull versus bear debate. And, um, I was very bullish at that time um, for what I felt were the right reasons. And going up against him, you know, who is a friend, still is a friend, was very daunting for me. You know, um, he's running $4 billion at the time, very successful. Um, but that debate went really well. You know, I was, and I think that moment for me was when I realized, actually, wait, you know, um, I do know what I'm doing. Uh, and I think the feedback from that debate um, from the person I was debating with, as well as others, you know, um, their support yeah. made me realize that, you know, so, um, again, you know, some of the core clients that are still with us today, you know, helped me to, to realize that what I have been thinking of as a shortcoming is actually what they love the most. Yep. Yep. It's beautiful. I, I, what a special, what a special person that person was on that other side of that debate that they were able to perhaps be neutral enough to hear you first of all right and then be able to see oh he can see what i can't see yeah i mean and, and i'd known him for, for some time and it was not just a debate but it was actually where it took place and the people in the audience were all people that i uh, admire respect aspire to be like and so it's really being part of that community at that time when, uh, yeah, like six years ago, wow. which was a very sort of, um, yeah, I think a, a transformation experience in, in so much as it filled me with more confidence. Yes, yes. I, I can't imagine how uh, daunting or uncomfortable at the beginning of that conversation it must have been. I would have probably been having a breakdown, <laughs> especially it was in front of people. Holy mackerel. It was, I mean, if I remember back to it, actually, I mean, the preparation was, was solid, right? So I actually wasn't worried about the debate. That's great. Um, because I was very strong in my conviction about what was happening and what people were getting wrong. 
and again, I had known the person as well. So there, there was this friendliness to our to 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 each other, and so yeah, it wasn't. Uh, I didn't feel it daunting, but uh, but yeah, the, the feedback was amazing, um, and I think I needed it at that point in time. Would you be willing to share, you know, some or all of even the confidence you went into that debate with that day? And in general, you do have uh, at times contrarian perspectives on global matters. What is it that facilitates that confidence in your perspective? I'm not sure. Um when it comes to markets that I'm always confident in my thinking, I think it requires flexibility. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think what I would say is my goal is to be independent, right? So um, I shy away from, you know, holding on to any ideological view or being dogmatic in my thinking. I think it's important to be agnostic and empirical. I think that's number one. I think that's very core to who I am, what I do, just to be independent. And then the way I approach things is also in a way of like, what's true? Like, what's the truth? You know, there's my view, there's your view, and then there's the divine view or the market view. So how can I get closer uh, to that truth? Yeah. And sometimes getting close to that is actually um, unlearning or unthinking what I've sort of built up as a judgment or a bias or a preconceived sort of notion. Yeah. And so it's really being flexible and with whatever is going on and trying to figure out what's true. Mm -hmm. And um, and then there are moments in time when you have a lot more conviction um, and there are certain times where, you know, it's okay to just say, I don't know. And so I've had all, all, all of those sort of experiences. When you spoke just now about that neutrality, and to not let your own internal judgments uh, potentially be a bias. What is it that you practice to, to test yourself, to make sure, am I, it, am I completely unattached? Uh, how do you check that for yourself? I think um, what I always remind myself of is what's probably the most common plaint amongst the prophets, which is, oh God, show us things as they are, yeah. right? So I think that's like my fundamental baseline yeah. is that I don't want to see things from my lens. I don't know what's going on, but like, so show me that. I think that's like the fundamental baseline. That's what I sort of aspire towards. And then I think the, there's like an internal compass. Like I think the two, two factors, one, you develop habits of observation over time mm -hmm. where you can sort of pick up on signals, whether it's through people, through reading, um, through prices or whatever, like you can just pick up signals. I think that's one, just developing habits of observation. I think the internal one is um, trying to take everything that I'm consuming and like filter it internally, right? So. Uh, I often talk about how the you know the best way to find clarity, you know, your, your most profound moments will be when your heart, your mind, and your tongue are aligned. Mm. And any conflict you'll have, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with your teammates, whether it's with some stranger, is when those three things are not aligned. Mm. Your heart saying something else, your mind saying something else, um, your tongue is saying something else. 
So I think living with that sort of um, centeredness constantly, yes. I, I believe, uh, provides more clarity in life, which then I believe also provides more clarity in markets or in anything for that matter. Yeah. And so I think that's very core to who I am. I think, you know, the most common wisdom is know thyself. But, you know, I think what's left out is like which version, you know, because we're, there's so many versions of us out there. Yeah. And what I've found is the best way to collapse all those different versions into one person hood is through this, you know, alignment between heart, mind and tongue yeah. um, in all your relationships, in all your situations. So even when it comes to markets, it's, it applies, you know, this idea of when you are thinking about a view and you're communicating it to a client, how do you feel, you know, is, is it, is, is something missing? Um, and that, tells you um, and I benefited a lot from the community that way in terms of just the, the flow of conversations um, it's a core part of the process yeah and keeps me in check for sure yeah let's talk about the community a little bit uh, it's it, why don't you describe it I I can do it but you'll do such a much more beautiful job yeah I think you know I mean it's interesting because when you know, initially the, the business has gone through phases and in the first three, four years were, were very difficult. Um, and then I realized I can't just be sitting in Dubai, you know, expecting things to happen. I need to go out there and meet people and, and start really focusing on building a community and, and start doing dinners, you know, in, in New York and London and Hong Kong and Singapore and San Francisco and everywhere I travel, I'd, I'd, I'd host a dinner. And, and it became such an amazing experience for me because, you know, seated across you know, the round table were folks that I was, again, you know, uh, inspired by, aspired to be like, learned from. Yeah. And each of those dinner experiences were just fantastic. And so that carried on for a few years, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah. And that was a great way to tap into, again, this notion that all of us are smarter than any of us, right? Um, and as what Rumi would say, be with those, you know, who help your being. So I've never had this interest of, you know, broadcasting to an audience, you know, what my, what my thinking is. I'm not a guru in that manner. Right? That's not who I want to be or what I believe Stray Reflection stands for. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe that, um, yeah, you know, like you want to surround yourself with amazing people, you know, as I say, the most interesting people in the most interesting location for the most interesting ideas. So um, we're restarting the dinner series now, which I'm excited about. I'm excited. Um, but yeah, so that was like the beginning of the sort of community. And, and it's again, it's global, right? Yeah. So, you know, the conversations happening in New York and London are very different from the ones happening in Hong Kong, Singapore, the Middle East. Um, they range across, you know, hedge fund CIOs to pension fund CIOs to individual investors as well, yeah. um, to some, you know, uh, VC, you know, partners to, you know, a founder of a, of a company or a startup. So yeah. it really varies a lot. And so I get to learn a lot from, speaking to them because I think uh, again core part of the process is to speak one-on-one yeah. um, to as much of the community as I can and as regularly as I can um, and that's been a again a key part of the process of learning and writing yeah yeah it's it's beautiful to watch even topics that I'm not familiar with I can see how someone is welcomed to share their opinion and 
even when they dis there's disagreements in perspective between people or between you and people, there's this respect of like, this is what I'm seeing. What do you think about that? Well, what do you think about this? Because I really think this, like, it's just true discourse. And it's just, it's remarkable because I can tell in almost everybody's comments, they're hoping to be challenged because they're like, maybe I don't see this fully. And that's what facilitates growth in my experience. So it's, it's just refreshing to see that kind of back and forth. It's really, yeah, I mean, it just comes down to, again, like, you know, we all want to know what's, what's, what's true. And certain times other people will have more insight than I do. Um, and we're all doing different things, all have different backgrounds, all have different perspectives. So there's a lot to learn from each other. Yeah. You're on your Twitter handle background, uh, which will give everybody in the liner notes. Um, it's a su successful investing. It's only possible with knowledge of oneself. I'd love you to just talk a little bit about that for yourself, but for traders or investors that are listening to us may they they maybe know this deeply but they also may not what and where would you point someone to begin that journey of them knowing themselves and what's the why is that so part of successful investing i think it's the most you know i think i don't think it's a novel idea i think it's the most common wisdom that you'd have any successful investor share um, and we've discussed it in some of our salons as well, this notion that, um, you know, I, I phrase it also differently in that the biggest risk we need to manage is ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not some position. It's not, you know, some macro event. At the end of the day, you know, we're the ones doing buying or selling and deciding how we want to build our portfolios. So I think the biggest risk we need to manage is ourselves. Um, and that means, you know, okay, so what does that mean? I think the, the starting place for really understanding that is um, my favorite book about markets, which is uh, called The Money Game by George Goodman, you know, who wrote under the pseudonym Adam Smith. Um, and I think he phrases it really well in, you know, how important it is to really figure out, you know, um, what it is that motivates you, you know, what is it that you really want? And then what is it, um, how do you get triggered based on different things that happen in markets? And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's certainly a core belief um, of the community as well. Like, you know, like we, we gotta get deeper into knowing oneself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you feel, what, what prompted stray reflections to be created? That was something I've wanted to ask you for a while. <laughs> the, the, I, I initially, thought, okay, so basically when I wanted to be independent, I wanted to be on my own, doing my own thing. And I felt that um, the goal I had set myself was to do my own thing by the time I turned 30. Yeah. This is when I was in my early 20s. And the reason uh, I felt 30 was a good year was because the, uh, the older I'd get, the more, uh, you know, money you'd potentially be making, you'd have, you know, kids or a family and become more difficult to leave something more lucrative. So I wanted to like cut the ties before it gets difficult to do so. Yeah. And um, so I told myself that I'm going to do something before I turn 30. And the, and the goal always was to launch a hedge fund, wow. you know, being inspired by, you know, market wizards and, and Druckenmiller and Twitter story. 
So that was the initial plan was to launch a hedge fund. And I think uh, the idea was raise a couple of million dollars, do it from your bedroom, just the way Druckmiller, Dali, all these other guys did it. Yeah. But what I realized as I, <clears throat> what I realized as I quit in 2012, took some time off and I started um, to raise capital. I raised a couple of million dollars, but I realized through that process, I was, through that process, as I was speaking to investors, I wasn't feeling it. There was that, the, the alignment wasn't there. Wow. And so I stopped to figure out what is the reason. And, and I, what I realized, not in that moment, but later on, was that I was holding on to a dream from my early 20s, and yet I was changing every single year. And so I realized, actually, I'm not the same Jawad that had that dream, and so let's just be patient here. Wow. And so I started writing um, in response uh, to just figure it out for myself. And then, you know, it's about markets and some personal stuff. So I started sharing it out with people. Um, and that was the genesis, really, uh, in 2014. Um, and then, you know, part of me thought maybe this is a non-conventional path to money management. I'll write research yeah. and eventually someone will be like, hey, Jawad, I love what you're doing. Take some money. And even though that's happened a couple of times, you know, along the way, I've refused yeah. every time. Wow. And um, interestingly enough, as... I got more and more involved in straight reflections. I realized actually um, I'm, I'm enjoying the writing side of things and actually don't see myself as an investor. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that breaking that identity from the, you know, this hedge fund persona was, uh, was liberating as well. Wow. Um, realizing that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to do. Um, and, and being open to, you know, whatever is required for you to do your duty in a way. And if it's through writing, then, um, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that story speaks to and shows up repeatedly in your book and just your philosophy and approach is this desire to check yourself. You, you just know to check yourself and to look within and to pause and to get recentered. When did that start for you? How, how you, you do it so naturally now. You, and every time I pick this book up, because I pick, I mean, you can see how destroyed and bent it is because I'm always looking in it. It reminds me to do that. How and when did you start to do that for yourself? That pausing? I think it was um, a gradual process. It started with writing, uh, right? Because I think it was again, around that period, 2012-ish, when I left um, my, my job. And just to be alone and spend time the way I want to spend time, I think that was a big part of it. Yeah. Um, reading the texts that inspired, influenced me, you know, whether it's Emerson, whether it's Rumi, um, uh, and, and, you know, C.S. Lewis, there's so many, but I think learning from them, um, so that was probably the period, you know, so like gradually, and, and, and I think you, you, and it's all chronicled in the book in a way, right? Because it, it was yes. ne- there was never an intention to write a book, but yeah. the intention always when I started writing was to write from yeah. a personal space. So a lot of that came out in the book. And so the learnings have happened um, as you read them. 
So it was gradual, um, I would say, but increasing in intensity, you know, and um, and I feel that's just core now as well, you know, to to who I am. I think you know deeper in going deeper and deeper in faith. That that I think was the was the key. I think that was the beginning. The the writing in around twenty twelve to twenty fourteen period. Would you be comfortable talking a little bit about your faith? Yeah, I just, I just, you know, I believe all spiritual traditions are essentially saying, you know, um, the same. And if I was to um, break it down, it's just to become the best version of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And the way to do that, you know, uh, Rabbi Heschel, I think, said, you know, faith is an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, Rumi talked about the heart um, on many occasions. Even Confucius talks about the heart on many occasions. So I think in a world now, which is like so much like mind driven and science driven, it's interesting how ancient wisdom is all about the heart. Yeah. And yet we don't talk about it. Um, so I believe the heart has its own intelligence. So like paying more attention to what it says, what it feels. And I would say, you know, um, it's all about purifying the heart. Right from um, anger, from envy, from whatever it is, bitterness that you carry from the past or whatever. Like so, so it was for me like this pivot from leave it leading a very goal oriented life, mm-hmm. which is very you know projection future based, to when you start you know going deeper into spirituality and and getting stronger in faith, realizing how important it is to be present. You know, um, like Prophet Muhammad would say, when you wake up in the morning, don't expect to see the evening. Mm. When you go to bed at night, don't expect to see the morning. When you're living with that sort of presence and intention on a daily basis, I feel like it changes you completely. Yeah. And um, and yeah, I you know, know, all all life is worship. Like you know, um, for me, you know, this conversation, you know, the observation of daily life is the greatest spiritual practice. I believe. Yeah. You know, my work is worship for me, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think the real pivot for me came when I realized, you know, what Prophet Jesus said, you know, seek first the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and then everything shall be granted to you. Yeah. So, I, so I see my life in these two halves where the mm-hmm. first half was me seeking everything, wow. you know, and, you know, wanting to be a billionaire, wanting to be on the cover of magazines, wanting to have a foundation and like doing all these, you know, saving the world. Um, and then realizing, actually, let me just play with these words and just understand what it means. Seek yeah. first the kingdom of God and then everything shall be granted to you. So I just reverse engineered it. And I realized actually my job is to seek that kingdom of God. It's my job is worship. And if I do that well, everything else will take care of itself, mm-hmm. whether it's reflections, whether it's, um, you know, my relationship with my family, um, yeah. anything, you know, so like I feel so that that way also like share reflections, you know, becomes this vehicle which I can devote my life to. It becomes a devotional act. Mm-hmm. Writing becomes a duty. It's not a job or a career or a company. It's a duty. Um, so it just completely changes your perspective on everything that's happening around you. Um, and 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 faith becomes the center, right? So I think for me that's such a core part now like faith is my center i think it's completely liberating it's real freedom 
um, because you're not afraid to die. You're not afraid of, you know, being poor. You're not afraid of um, losing someone. Yep. You know, again, Prophet said, all is well with the faithful, whatever the circumstance. Yep. All right. So if you're not feeling well, you're lacking in faith. So like, let's go back. Let's build that conviction again. Yep. Yeah. So those are some thoughts. I'm, I'm crying because it's just so, it's just, it's the truth. You know, it's the truth of the capital T is that focus on that which is your mission, your call, and that's what you're doing. You're, you, you heard the call and you listened, which I do think, especially in the world of finance, is pretty freaking rare. So thank you. Just thank you for, for living that and hearing that call because it's, because it's changing everybody's lives just your beingness, never mind your writing, never mind your wisdom, but your beingness and every person you interact with and that will hear you in this conversation, that beingness, it's, it's, it's healing. Like, why did I start to cry? Because it's like, I'm being healed just hearing you say those words. So thank you for that. I mean, Kim, you've always been very kind and gracious with your words. Um... But yeah, you know, I mean, I just think that we're all, uh, yeah, we're all bouncing off each other, you know, playing parts in each other's lives. And uh, yeah, and yeah, and I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I do too. Uh, because of that particular piece that we just spoke to, I, I did ask the community for uh, some questions that they might have for you. And it feels appropriate for me to speak to uh uh, John's question right now. So John asked, in the moments of the greatest stress that you experience, is there a memory, a mantra, or something else that will help center you? Yeah, I think it's just um, God is present. You know, in, in Urdu, it's it's Khuda which basically, you know, is to remind you that you're not alone. Mm. And I think uh, that is so liberating just to know you're not alone and to actually believe that, feel that in your bones, in your soul. Yeah. Um, because again, there are two ways of doing things. One is in which you feel like you're the master of the universe. You're in control and you're doing everything. And everything that takes you towards a particular goal makes you happy. Whatever makes you fall down makes you sad because yeah. you're headed towards a goal. And then this is other way to live where you realize actually you don't know what's best. Mm. I don't know what's best for me. Um, I didn't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. All of my five-year plans have not sort of planned out the way I thought they would be. And yet it's beautiful. Um, and so I think acknowledging that I don't know what's best, mm -hmm. you know, number two, surrendering, I think is the biggest sort of, it's, 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 it's interesting, right? It's the paradox because there's freedom in surrendering, <laughs> And, um, and so I think, again, in those moments, you know, it would certainly be just to, again, remind yourself of who you are in relation to the being and, uh, and that you're not alone. Uh, and then again, all is well with the faithful, whatever the circumstance, whether it's sickness, whether it's, you know, a financial difficulty, whether it's a loss of a, a loved one, anything, you know, you're not yeah. alone. You're not alone. Um, CT asked, 
if you were able to speak to your 25-year-old self, how would you deliver a message to allow that part of you at that age to really hear you? What would, what would you tell that 25-year-old self? And how would you say it in such a way that he might listen? I would probably repeat <laughs> something that I was told or gifted, I, I should say, you know, five years prior. So when I was 20 years old, I was gifted this art piece with this Joseph Campbell quote on it. And uh, I didn't know who Joseph Campbell was, but the quote was, you must be willing to get rid of the life you've planned so as to have the life that is waiting for you. And it was given to me by my best friend and, and I was a serial planner. And so she gave it to me for that purpose. Obviously, it, made, it meant nothing to me in terms of the meaning. I liked the, the sound of it, but the meaning, you know, um, wasn't something that I thought much about. Yeah. So at 25, I could probably use those same words again. <laughs> but I would also say that there's no way um, I could be told that mm -hmm. and it would impact me. Like, there's just no way. Because when I was 25, I was just so sure of what I wanted to do and where I was going that I don't think, unless it was Stan Druckenmiller or Paul Tudor Jones dispensing <laughs> that advice, I don't think I would have listened to anybody else. Um, not because I had figured it out. Yeah. I was, you know, it's just that, you know, I was just very single-minded in my, in my striving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's see. And then Brian asked, how do you filter out noise? and remain true to your thesis? And how do you distinguish noise from legitimate feedback? So my relationship with information has completely changed. It's like, a, you know, 10 years ago, uh, maybe even like six years ago, seven years ago, I used to like um, get bombarded with information. So I would like, you know, just, you know, go out and read everything and, wanting to make sure that I'm not missing anything. I would be very stressed about it. Um, I would read every article, read every story, know exactly what's happening everywhere around the world. And that was my approach. And I realized um, it's not helpful because I can't know everything and I don't know everything. And um, so that made me rethink what I was doing. Yeah. So that's number one. So my relationship with information has completely changed. Whereas now... I seek out information on an as-needed basis. Wow. As opposed to like, you know, being bombarded with stuff. I'd only, whatever I want, I'll go out and seek it uh, based on a particular topic that I'm researching or thinking about. So that's, that completely changes the relation. Um, so I think you filter out a lot of noise just that way, you know? Okay. I think secondly, um, with respect to when you're building a thesis or you're doing research on a particular topic, um, the way I can check myself is through the conversation with the community, right? So sometimes I'm, I'm sent in a, di a direction of research based on a conversation with someone. They'll mm -hmm. spark an idea and then you'd go in that direction. Or sometimes I've got a particular thinking that I'll speak to three people at different times in different parts of the world who will make a particular comment that will question my thesis. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go back to the drawing board. And so I'm very sensitive to how sort of the community is thinking um mm -hmm. what what matters to them to always check my own work or send me in different directions um 
so that's what I would say, you know, it's just like being very intentional about the information you consume, very, very intentional. Yeah. And I also have the luxury of doing that, you know, and I understand that because mm-hmm. of the fact that, you know, I don't write daily or weekly mm. um, and I don't have meetings, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, it's just me, yeah. you know, I don't have meetings. I'm not doing things that uh, are draining my, you know, my energy. Uh, yeah. that investors have to like sort of compete with because they're not just margin markets that they've got, you know, compliance on, you know, they're dealing with, they've got risks they're dealing with. So I've got, you know, hundred percent of attention the way I want to spend it. Yeah. And that gives me a lot of sort of time to reflect um, and be more thoughtful about thinking about the second, third, fourth tier effects of whatever's going on. Yes. Yes. Makes sense. I, I wondered, uh, you know, because there's just so much content available out there, how does one, uh, how do you balance that because of what you're, you know, what you're ultimately speaking to and informing people about? So do you, how have you, how has that changed over time for you? I think what's helped in terms of, instead of change, I'd say what's helped me is, is starting to take writing as a craft. You know, mm-hmm. you know when I started realizing, actually, I don't want to be an investor and I want to improve, you know, the books I was reading were about how to be a better writer, not how to be a better investor. Mm-hmm. So once I realized that, then I became much more specific about understanding how I spend my time and how I spend my day, yeah. you know, and um, putting guardrails around it. So, mm-hmm. you know, and so working with a coach, you know, uh, as I have been over the last couple of years, you know, Aline, she's been very helpful in helping me figure out my writing routine and what works best for me and how do I create guardrails. Yes. I think that that's been huge to create and carve time out throughout the day. Yeah. Um, this concept of maker versus manager schedule, I was unaware of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, the how important the maker mindset is for me and how I approach my work. Yes. So I think that was the first step was just like putting the guardrails and the structure to it. And then once you have that is to figure out, you know, what is the sort of flow that is required mm-hmm. to work on ideas? There's always ideas in your mind that you're sort of thinking about. Yes. But how can I stop thinking and start writing uh, more effectively as well? So I think what changed was I changed my process, mm. right? Whereby every single day um, on those set days, I will have in advance uh, an idea of what I am focused on. Mm-hmm. So it's like cutting out all distractions, um, notifications, and just focusing on that topic and trying to produce something over two days or three days. So I think it's just that is, you know, it's more process wise, taking it as a craft. And so when I'm focusing on a particular research topic, I will ignore everything else and I'll just do that. No calls, no uh, distractions, none of that stuff. Um, And if there's something urgent, it'll still find its way to get to me, right? So I'm okay Mm -hmm. not knowing, I think. Yeah. Perhaps that's the big difference is that I'm okay not knowing. I'm okay, you know, being slower to find out things that I don't, that aren't as impactful for markets or investors. And if something is important enough, it'll find me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
I, I do have more questions, but Lucas, I want to let you get a word in edgewise here. Sorry to uh, commandeer so no, many. No, no, I'm, I'm just happy to happy to listen along. Uh, but I was wondering, Jawad, um, the idea of, you know, a lot of the people we work with uh, is around emotional intelligence, um, but also spiritual intelligence. And I wonder if you can maybe speak to the idea of differentiating between the two um, for maybe like the modern listener who may not uh, be a very spiritual person in general. I don't approach it from the, I mean, I know the EQ SQ framework, but I don't, yeah. I haven't studied it. I haven't approached it in that framework. So I don't know how to dif definitively differentiate it for you in a term <laughs> that your audience may perhaps understand. But um, I mean, the way it is for me, it's simply, again, emotional for me is just having that clarity, right? And um, the clarity aspect comes from making sure you're centered, the heart, mind, tongue alignment. I think for me, it's just that that centeredness is super important. That's where the emotional clarity comes from. And I think on the spiritual side, it's just knowing that you don't know what's best and you don't know what's true. And it's that striving. So that's where the striving comes from. And, uh, you know, I would like to say what I do for a living is I'm devoted to the pursuit of truth, mm. right? That's where that spiritual side comes in. And um, so, yeah, I think, I think they go hand in hand. Um, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I think we would agree with that. Um, well, yeah. Myself, I would agree with that. I'm not sure. What about you, Kim? Yeah, I, I do. I think, I think it's, uh, I think they both uh, complement each other. They complement each other. Just some questions about this current market, this current environment. We, what are we today? We are, what is today's date? The 23rd of March, 2022. Uh, and I'm just really curious where you are at with so many things that are happening. Let's just start with the Ukraine. I read some of your comments about that you suspect this might be a long war and that over time the markets will get desensitized to it. Uh, anything else about that that you think short-term traders and investors need to be conscious of or, or present to, to navigate what's happening? I think the market right now needs uncertainty resolution. And, and resolution around Fed and its hike plan, as well as the balance sheet um, adjustment, uh, resolution around the war, resolution around inflation. And I think um, we'll get answers this year. I think the pandemic has completely distorted base effects. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know what the true macro picture is actually, you know, because of the, the base effects have been so warped. But those wash out. Um, starting next month. And so what I expect is the macro picture that will emerge is one in which you'll see um, inflation falling mm -hmm. um, to, you know, probably around two-ish, you know, two and a half to three percent range in the core PC by the end of the year, which would be a positive. Mm -hmm. You'd see that um, companies have been able to offset supply chain challenges, as well as wage inflation through productivity and price increases. That's going to be a positive surprise. I think 
you'll see um, markets that have already gotten desensitized to an extent to the market to the to the invasion. You know, the S&P 500, for example, is up since the invasion. Uh, European stocks more or less have recovered much of their gains as well. And I suspect, you know, it, it, you will continue to get desensitized to the political situation. And so I'm generally more hopeful uh, and optimistic about the outlook from here. I think the biggest mistake people made post-GFC was that they undermined the resilience of the U.S. recovery. Mm. People kept talking about a double recession. Uh, the Fed can't hike rates, you know, one and done. And we ended up having the longest recovery, um, the longest bull market. I think the mistake people are making this cycle, perhaps, is one in which they are undermining the resilience of the corporate sector. Mm. Um, and uh, to, again, pr- protect margins, grow profitability, despite acute labor shortages, despite um, supply chain challenges. Mm-hmm. So I think we're still early, you know, enough in the cycle where we can uh, continue higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think bond yields continue higher, you know, to two and a half to seven, two point seven percent on the ten year. I think stocks can continue higher. We've had a pretty steep valuation adjustment since really bad earnings go from here. So I'm generally more positive than the consensus at this point um, mm-hmm. because I do think the macro picture that's going to emerge. Because what matters is not the headlines today. What matters are the headlines six months from now. Mm. And so will the headlines six months from, from now be more negative mm. or uh, more positive relative to the concerns today on mm. inflation, on, on the Fed, on the war, on supply chain, um, on wages? And, and I think on all those counts, we'll, we'll be surprised positively. Mm. There's, uh, you also spoke at some point uh, in the forum, in Stray Reflections Slack channel, you talked about that the West doesn't really understand Putin and Russia. Uh, would you speak a little bit about what we do, how we need to understand that so that we can navigate it perhaps much more effectively? If you're talking about the government, I don't think, I, I don't think you're talking about the government or, the, or an investor. They do very different things, right? Um, yeah. I don't think the government can. Um, you know, it's very difficult to to do that because, I mean, you still see reports of how the government doesn't even understand Taliban after all these years, right? So um, there's political policy that's set on a course that is very difficult to alter. Mm-hmm. And there are like lots of influencing forces that is um, structural in nature and doesn't usually help deviate the path. Yeah. So they're always going to be misunderstanding, confusion. Like you know, it's the same thing with Western China, U.S. and China, whether it's U.S. and Russia. So I don't think those those bridges get uh, closed down mm-hmm. of understanding. Um, the comment I think that you referred to was simply understanding that I think there's this and this. There's a thinking that, you know, Putin wants to um, go back to the Soviet era. And I think that's not the case. Um, mm. the, you know, Russia sees itself as an imperial empire. Mm. And Putin certainly would, would um, hearken back to those days of um, czarist imperial Russia and, and its place in history. Mm. And so I think that legacy is very important to understand what is going on. And so I think, again, when, when you think about what's true, 
I feel like the reporting on the war has been quite poor mm-hmm. uh, in terms of understanding what's the true picture. And so when I see such quick consensus around you know, this win-lose mindset that Russia's losing the war and uh, they're in a corner or whatever, I, you know, I, I, I'm suspicious of it. Yeah. And, um, and I'm doing more research on it now, actually, probably to, to write something about it, our take. But, um, but yeah, I think the West is undermining not just, the West is not just misunderstanding Russia, but I think also undermining the resilience to get its aims. Mm. Um, it's a very complex topic. You could spend an hour talking about it. But, yeah. but yeah. yeah, I think if the expectation is Putin is going to fall and if the expectation is that Russia is going to bend over and uh, Ukraine will be able to fight off Russia by just supplying them with weapons. I think that's um, mistaken. Mm. Uh, Our mutual friend, Aaron Gensler, who introduced us, who I will, you know, thank for the rest of my life. Uh, I spoke to him yesterday and he posed a great question for you. So I'm going to read his now. He said, in these kinds of environments where we have the market uh, the way it is and geopolitically it's impacting uh, investors who want to succeed and yet they also perhaps uh, feel that what he said, for example, I wouldn't want to invest in a defense contractor ever. He's like, but that probably right now is the safest place for my money to go. He said, he was asking me to ask you, how, how do you yourself deal with those paradoxes when, when there is opportunity, but it perhaps conflicts with you morally uh, as an investor? I'm not an investor, so it's difficult for me to answer that, I guess, in the way Aaron perhaps would want to, um, yeah. to hear it. But again, if it's a, if it's a moral issue, then again, you got to just check where you stand, right? And, and do what feels right. Um, if that's the intent of the question, uh, I think it's just coming down to like what matters for you. Um, but in terms of if it's like, how do you invest around geopolitical uncertainty? I, I think it's again, just deciphering the signal from the noise. Yeah. There's a lot of noise out there and what's true, focus on that. And, um, and then again, I think make that the, the priority. Um, so what does it mean? Oil prices are rising. What is, you know? What does that mean for inflation? You know, again, what I'm finding in the headlines, uh, very poor reporting. Even economic analysis has been very poor, in my opinion, yeah. in terms of just sound bites and sensationalism. And this has been the case for some reason. I feel like over the last couple of years since the pandemic, I feel like the reporting has been quite poor. Um, with very sort of sensationalist headlines yeah. or you know, one order thinking as opposed to going deeper into analyzing the effects. So, so yeah, it's just deciphering the signal from the noise, you know, what matters and what doesn't matter uh, going forward. Uh, Daily practices, what are yours? Uh, Waking up at a particular time, going to bed at a particular time. So I think again, just being very, it depends on the day, actually, but generally, I would say 
um, waking up at six, I realized I, I enjoy waking up in the dark and I need a couple of hours of just silence by myself yeah. before the house comes alive, I guess, mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Um, so waking up at six, usually um, morning is spent in, you know, worship, mm -hmm. um, exercise for an hour mm -hmm. and um, start working around nine-ish. And uh, I don't work past five usually. Mm. Um, actually, I don't work past five. Uh -huh. And during that entire period, my notifications are off generally. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and in the evening time, it's just with kids. And, you know, bedtime around 11-ish to 12 between that. Um, yeah. But yeah, again, like, you know, I think it comes down to if you, come, if you come back to the essence of purifying the heart, which I think is a core object for me, you know, the prophet said, you know, the best way to purify the heart is through remembrance of God. Mm. And so I think um, what continues throughout the day is, is to try to be as mindful of, of that, mm. of God. Um, in your breath, in your tongue, whenever it is possible throughout the day um, is probably a constant as well. Um, so it's not just something for like 10 minutes in the morning or 10 minutes at night. It's actually uh, with you the whole time, whether you're walking, whether you're eating. Again, just being intentional about everything that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that would be probably the most significant um, daily consistent sort of practices is that remembrance uh in your book there's a part where you speak about your dad and how he had this amazing ability to be confident and humble and how he there's a sentence that is so beautiful to me he didn't demand success he merely accepted it as an offering and I just wondered if you would just talk a little bit about how you do that. How do you balance confidence and humility? I think when you start living from this faith-centered life, you realize your position in relation to the divine and everything becomes a gift. You know, so it's not like you're not striving. You know, it doesn't make you less ambitious. It becomes, you become, you become more ambitious. Um, because you're striving not for your own ego, but for a higher purpose. And so for me, it's always keeping that relationship in mind. Um, it's all a gift, you know, everything is from that source, uh, whether it's good, good or bad. Um, and it's again, and being very, very present in that thought, you know, like really internalizing it. Um, yeah has been the key for me for sure in uh you know like i know my job is just to focus on the process i can't control the outcome yeah. you know and so i will just focus on the process of doing my daily duty mm. and um, trust that you know everything else will be taken care of mm -hmm. and and when something happens to feel that gratitude um not just through my own efforts, but through a divine blessing. Like everything becomes, you know, something from the divine. 
Yeah. And in that way, you know, one thing I'd add, Kim, I'll just say that in that way, it's not just good things, it's also bad things, right? So for me, like the definition of success has got completely changed from like material terms in the past to one in which if it brings you closer to God, it's, it's you know, uh, even a bad thing is a good thing, right? So, you know, you can, you can give someone money and send him farther away from himself, or you can give someone money and bring him closer. You can take someone's child and send them away, or you can take someone's child and bring them closer. Yeah. So like, what is reward? What is punishment, right? I think it comes down to like, what meaning you extract for everything that happens. Yeah. And yeah. so for me, it's yeah. all um, a love story, you know, in a way. Yeah. And um, how do you keep drawing closer uh, and closer? You, the quote that you put around that part with your dad, you said that he understood, as Rumi said, uh, that the wound is the place where the light enters you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what question did I not ask you that I should have asked you? How are you doing perhaps since the survey or the, the, the judgment index? I guess that's one that. Okay. Really... How are you doing? Well, I wasn't going to do it on our podcast. I would ask you privately, <laughs> but I'm happy to ask you now. How have you been doing since the judgment index? Yeah, quite well, actually. And it's, and it's again, just a play of words and, um, right. And, and, and realizing actually that when I am falling into self-doubt, mm. I'm doing so because there is a self. Mm. And so I need to lose that self. And um, as the poet Iqbal would say, you know, lose yourself and run to God. Strengthened by God, return to yourself. Wow. And so I feel like whenever I find myself in those moments, although I haven't had many of those moments since um, I took that test, or since, you know, I guess I, I wrote about it or you spoke about it. But that's certainly, that trick certainly seems to be working for me. Wow. Is this idea that if, if I am feeling self-doubt, it's because I'm thinking about the self and, and there should be no self. Wow, 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 wow. So that we're talking, Joad and I, about an assessment uh, that Lucas and I have here with the Wall Street coach. We call it a trader. Uh, uh, to help me, what, what are, yeah, what are we calling it? Executive positioning index and the trader right. positioning index. Yes, yes. And Joad took it and uh, was very gracious to let me walk him through his results. And it was uh, he, your, your willingness to embrace what it spoke to was impressive. And also the way you're viewing that around that self that I've never heard anybody talk about it like that. Jawad, that that is how you catch yourself, is that the self is uh, is the place of the disconnect. That's it's it's a beautiful, beautiful way of looking at it. I never never heard anybody see it that way, but it makes so much sense. It makes thanks so much to sense. you for making me focus on it. <laughs> uh, it's a good timing. 
Thank you for being trustworthy, you know, trusting me to do it. I, you know, appreciate that more than I can say. Um, all right. The, the last question, but you may have a question, Lucas. Let me check in with you again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, it's just interesting the way you put that, Jawad, because there is so much on that assessment about the self and, you know, the, the self-confidence, uh, the self-esteem, self-criticism. Mm -hmm. And all of those, like when they are, when we consider them balanced, it is, there is like a almost not lack of self, but like an almost ego death kind of in a way where it's, you know, that, that presence. And that's where we do, we look for that strength in alignment and balance. And it goes back to a lot of what we, this conversation has been. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All said, Lucas. Um, at, there's another chapter in your book. Uh, with, that describes describes shaboom shaboomi. Am I pronouncing that correct? Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of it before. Fascinated by it. Would you be willing to just speak a little bit to that? Because I think it's. I, I feel that you are living it, and uh, that word I would love to just leave on because I feel like that's what this whole conversation was today. Yeah, so that word w was um, not something that I knew. And I don't know if I'm still living off it because even back then it was um, told to me by a friend I met in, in Sun Valley for breakfast. And uh, and she took it from a, a fictional novel. Um, I think it was called Bendigo Schaffer. And, uh, and uh, it's about this calm confidence um, that you know certain people can sort of have in the way they go about their life mm -hmm. um yeah i mean it's not a word that i think about much at all to be honest but uh but yeah it's a, it has a great meaning and a great story behind it um within that sort of context of what the what heidi shared with me that morning yeah, the, the description, I mean, there, you know, it's a whole paragraph on page 120 for everybody who wants to go get the book. But the word that stands out for me and that you emulate is this, it's elegance. And it's elegance on a soul level of just uh, a constant practice or striving to strip away that which isn't that clean elegance. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. It's funny, right? Because in one way you are wanting to become something, someone, you know, we're all trying to become something, someone. Yeah. But I guess to Lucas's point earlier, it's all, it's actually about unbecoming. <laughs> Um, in a way, um, certainly for the spiritual path, that is the, that is the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. and yeah, and I think it, it, it provides an edge, um, in anything that you do, right? Because if you're not pretending to be different people, if you're not holding on to all these negative energies, hopefully you can see things clearly around you, you know? Uh, it's funny now, even if, even if I would read an article, uh, I'll read a statement within an article and, and I would, I could immediately pick out judgments, very strong judgments or like an opinion that's unwarranted or whatever. You can just throw the question, is it true? 
because a lot of people will write or say things with um, you know established judgments behind it, which need to be questioned, which should be questioned, and it takes you further away from the truth, right? So like this is question like I think it's a play on Byron Katie this idea of like is it true? Um, yeah. Is it absolutely true? You know, so I think that works in markets too. Yeah, for sure. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I mean, I could talk to you for hours and I would love to have you back one day if you'll consider it. This was just a beautiful, amazing, educational, heartfelt conversation. And I'm just so grateful to you, Juwad, for coming on. And this is Juwad's first interview. So I'm very proud to have that first interview because, you know, Everybody's going to want to talk to you, Juwan. I'm sure they all have uh, asked you before. So thank you for coming on here first. Really grateful to you. No, thank you for everything that you do and, and uh, for playing this crucial part in my life, Kim. Um, I adore you. And uh, it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you. This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can download Kim's free ebook, Discipline and Finding Your Edge at TraderDiscipline.com and learn more about working with Kim and her team at thewallstreetcoach.com. And if you're feeling generous, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.